You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. Part of my interest in presenting you with the fullness of Christian music and congregational song is to make you more fully aware that even though the traditional and classical styles of Christian music may no longer be the dominant forms, these forms are still alive and thriving. Composers and lyricists are continuing to create new compositions for choirs, orchestras, and congregations. New Christian hymnals are continuing to be produced and sold. Today, my guest is Adam Tice. Adam is the editor of Congregational Song for GIA Publications and is the text editor for Voices Together, the 2020 Mennonite hymnal. In 2004, Adam was named a Loveless Scholar for the Hymn Society of the United States and Canada. He served as a member of the Society's Executive Committee from 2007 to 2010. He was also Associate Pastor of Heightsville Mennonite Church in Maryland from 2007 to 2012. He now lives with his family in Goshen, Indiana. Adam is here to share some of his hymns and to tell us about his work. Welcome, Adam. Thank you for being with me. Well, why don't we begin by letting you uh, tell your own life and spiritual journey, uh, especially as that led you into music and then also into um, sacred music and hymn writing. My, uh, my family background on my dad's side is Amish and Mennonite, and uh, he, when he was in college, married a Presbyterian. And uh, so our family had a sense of Mennonite identity when I was growing up, but we mostly lived in non-Mennonite regions. So we, we attended the best available church in each place that I grew up. That meant um, when we were in Alabama for a number of years, we were attending a house church made up of university students from the uh, Auburn University. And the music there was mostly... Uh, guitar, choruses, scripture songs. Then when I was eight, our family moved to Oregon, and we were a part of a Baptist church there, and uh, sang a mix of hymns and praise and worship music, um, accompanied by a band and organ and piano. Um, and that's where, uh, when I was 13, I was baptized. Um, and I, I like to joke a little bit, claiming it was the proper mode of baptism, because that's a good way to get people riled up. But I was immersed <laughs> in the Willamette River when it was way too cold to be in the water. Um, and uh, then when I was 15, moved to Indiana, and I was a, a part of a missionary church for many years. And uh, the musical roots of that church uh, was... Um, white gospel music, you know, early 20th century gospel music, and classic hymns as well, and a smattering of praise and worship music. Um, so I had a, a strong foundation of faith and uh, a commitment and a sense of encounter with God uh, through community, through music, um, that uh, became very important to me. Uh, when I went to college, I wanted to encounter and explore my own Mennonite roots more deeply. So that was part of the reason I chose Goshen College here in Indiana. And I studied music there, getting a degree in composition. 
and really fell in love with um, one of the traditional Mennonite streams of congregational song, um, which for a long time was rooted in a cappella singing. Lots of connections to the shape note singing tradition of the Americas, as well as classic hymnody, and a smattering of uh, German uh, classic hymnody. Um, my love for that um, led me to eventually go to seminary a few years after college. And it was in seminary that um, my professor gave our class an assignment to write a paraphrase of a psalm in a traditional hymn meter and to spend no more than 30 minutes doing it. And the 30-minute restriction was because she assumed that we would get frustrated by the assignment and she didn't want us banging our heads against the wall, you know, after a few hours of not being able to wrangle something into common meter. But I found the assignment pretty invigorating and after 30 minutes had a pretty satisfactory psalm paraphrase um, called For You My God I Wait. It was a paraphrase of Psalm 130. And in fact, that one has been published in a couple of hymnals now, uh, my very first hymn. Um, and that sort of opened the floodgates for me. Um, I had studied composition through college, but when I turned to the words, I found uh, something new in myself. Uh, I found I was better at it, that it was uh, better to collaborate with either the classic hymn composers or with new composers and uh, give my words life that way rather than uh, working too hard on the music myself. And so, yeah, that's what got me started. Uh, and I've been rolling ever since with writing hymns. Well, tell us a little more about your uh, composition background. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what, what did you begin in composing? Yeah, I was mostly interested in choral music and with congregational songs. So I was trying to write hymn tunes. They just generally weren't very good. Um, but, you know, I still do enjoy doing a little bit of arranging. And I, uh, I have enough of a grounding in music theory that I can uh, irritate the composers I work with by pointing out parallel fifths. What do you do? You have a, a kind of a style or do you uh, enjoy uh, writing, like, say, classical hymns or uh, gospel songs? Or um, I'd say I'm pretty eclectic. You know, when I'm writing a text, I don't really, um, I don't really think towards the style too much at the outset. Um, you know, I'll know if I am going to need a refrain or if I'm uh, going to shake up traditional meters too much. And in fact, these days when I write, I very rarely turn to the traditional meters unless I'm writing something that's so specific in its content that it's only ever going to get sung on the lectionary cycle once every three years. Then I'll turn to a traditional meter for flexibility of use. But uh, by and large, I get more excited by writing a new meter that requires a composer to do something interesting to bring it to life. Um, that's really how I got connected with composer Sally Morris, uh, because I was writing some really strange things, and my editor knew that she was the person to handle that. <laughs> well, we and we hope to to have a, a second uh, interview, uh, including her, and I'm I'm looking forward to that that opportunity and possibility. 
Uh, but you've, you, you've given us a couple of hymns uh, to listen to, so why don't we do that? Uh, let's begin uh, with the uh, uh, more difficult one. Sure. Uh, do, you, do you want me to share the story behind that before you play it? Uh, if you like, or we can save it till afterwards. Um, uh, well, uh, why, why don't I proceed it? Okay. Story. Um, okay. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more later about working on the Mennonite hymnal. Um, but one of my colleagues on the hymnal committee lost his brother to suicide uh, pretty early in our process. And my friend who lost his brother uh, dealt with his own grief and PTSD uh, following that loss. And I had a dream one morning where our hymnal committee was sitting around in a circle and this friend, Mike, says to us in my dream, I have a song for you guys. And he sings, and I, I got snippets of it in my dream, uh, this idea of hold on and we will hold on to you. Um, and I woke up knowing that this was something important, something interesting. And so I, I went and I wrote down what I could remember and sort of filled in the rest and workshopped it and worked on it. And it, as I mentioned, I usually turn to other composers for tunes, but in this case, the tune was part of the package. And I, I worked again with Sally Morris to refine it and get it into shape. So by the time I had something that felt right, um, I sent this to Mike and I said, you know, just aside from the hymnal project, I want to get your take on this thing. Um, and I didn't tell him how it had come to me, and I didn't even tell him I'd written it. But he responded right away that it was exactly the song he needed and that we had to see if we could get it in the hymnal too. And so I submitted it, and everything came up for anonymous review. Um, so I had many such experiences where I was in the circle of people evaluating my own work, which can be quite difficult. But in this case, the reaction was immediate that we recognized that we didn't really have a song like this in the repertoire. And uh, maybe I'll say more after we hear the song about what it is that the song does. Okay. And so this one is when pain and sorrow. All right. So let's listen to it.
well, it's a powerful hymn, mm. uh, and to me, expresses what so many feel uh, at some stage in their own spiritual journey, uh, especially involved with some kind of loss yeah. uh, that happens or some kind of questioning uh, that they have. Uh, so, yeah, go into a little more detail with us about that. Yeah, what I recognized was that in the world of secular music, there are lots of songs that express a commitment to an individual that we're, I or we are going to take care of you. I think of like Stand By Me or Lean On Me, um, that we see somebody suffering and we say, we're going to do what we can. And strangely enough, I couldn't find hymns that did that in that way. There's hymns of commitment from the individual to the community. There's hymns of commitment from the community to God and communal commitment to one another. But we didn't really have a way of singing, we will take care of you in the singular sense. And how often do we pray for somebody who we know is suffering or in need of healing or who has experienced something unimaginable? We needed a way to sing that. Um, and so that's that's where this uh, this hymn came into play. Um, in in what sense then uh, did did you uh, find it in the in the hymnal process? I, I'm not sure I understand what you mean. Uh, well, because you 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 said that uh, you you sent it to your friend. Uh, to to hear it and and he said it it touched him and that that you said it ended up becoming a, a part of uh, inclusion within within the hymnal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, I, so I submitted it through our normal submissions process, uh, which meant that it was anonymized and then evaluated by a few people, and then once it passed that stage, it was given to the full committee to evaluate. Uh, and when enough people had evaluated it on their own that it got a positive rating, then we sang it as a committee um, and then discussed it, evaluated it there to see whether it would go into the book. Um, and so it, it passed all those stages and was put into the hymnal. Well, I noticed in the recording that uh, it begins with a solo. Mm-hmm. Um, does it have to do that? Or, I mean, is that, a, is that a part of, or is that just for the sake of the recording? Uh, that, yeah, I, I find that a really useful way to introduce it, especially to uh, people hearing it for the first time. Um, it doesn't have to be done that way. And in fact, there's also a choral arrangement of available that Sally Morris arranged for me. Um, so there's, there's plenty of different options. Part of what I've discovered going out and in, introducing the Mennonite hymnal to congregations, I, I use this story and this song as uh, as part of a standard sermon that I preach. And I've started finding that congregations have learned this one already, that they've turned to it. And so I, I don't necessarily need to start it with a solo anymore. Um, but where it was recorded there was one of the first times it was sung. Um, and that was at a retreat for Mennonite music and worship leaders. And the soloist is my f- friend, uh, uh, Benjamin Berge, who is the music editor for the hymnal. Well, I like your idea. I didn't know that you preached. <laughs> and and so is that something that you, you commonly do, is that you integrate your preaching with, with the hymns? Yeah. 
Well, I guess I, I sort of stopped my faith journey when I started writing hymns, but I was a pastor for a while. Um, I served at Hyattsville Mennonite Church outside of Washington, D.C. Um, as associate pastor from uh, 2007 to 2012. Um, and so, yeah, I, I enjoy preaching. I, I especially enjoy it now that I'm not a pastor anymore because I can preach the same sermon over and over again and nobody <laughs> knows the difference. <laughs> so I can use all my best material and uh, <laughs> share these great stories. Well, let's listen to, then to the second uh, hymn uh, that you've sure. given us. Uh, this one's uh, based on the Beatitudes uh, right. in a lot of ways with some extensions uh, to the Sermon on the Mount uh, beyond that uh, called Blessed Are the Poor. So let's listen to that one. Earth tea. 
and see God's glory revealed. Let your goodness shine. The lost are restored, the broken are healed. All will be fulfilled. The law and the prophets have shown us the way. Heaven comes to earth. Rejoice and be glad for creation's new. So tell us about this hymn. Uh, how did this one come about? And of course, this one's uh, a lot more hopeful uh, in a yeah. lot of ways. The other one is a, is an expression of sadness and lament, uh, but this one uh, particularly uh, has an eschatological. Hope yes. To it. Yeah. Well, this came as a request from the composer. the The tune is by my boss at GIA Publications, Kate Williams, who's just an incredible composer. Um, she asked me for a um, hopeful, comforting text based on the Beatitudes. Um, and I wrote what we have here is the first two stanzas of this and the refrain, um, sent it to her. And right away, she came up with this gorgeous tune, but told me that it needed another stanza. And I said, well, what in the world am I supposed to do? I covered the Beatitudes. <laughs> called the Beatitudes in stanzas one and two. Um, but, you know, going back to Matthew, of course, the passage immediately after the Beatitudes is uh, salt and light. And so I found that to be a, a fruitful way to extend the hymn to make it to make it long enough to sing. Well, it's it's a wonderful hymn as well. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I enjoyed uh, interviewing Kate and Michael. Right. Uh, uh, on this. And so, it's, uh, yeah, it was, it was uh, uh, good to hear the collaboration between you two uh, relating to that. Um, and in what ways have you found this one being used? I mean, is it something that when you've gone out into churches that you've also found folks know it? Well, this was too late to show up in the Mennonite hymnal. So when, when I'm going out to churches, I'm focusing on that material. But this is in the newest um, Catholic hymnal from GIA called Gather Four, um, or Gather Fourth Edition. And uh, so it seems to have really been a, a popular edition there, um, that when the Beatitudes come up with the, in the lectionary, uh, this is really catching on quickly. And again, Kate has a choral arrangement of it available that's really beautiful. Well, then I kind of segue for us then into uh, your experience of uh, beginning to write music uh, and to write texts uh, that began to get you involved uh, in uh, helping develop a hymnal. 
Yeah. So as I mentioned, I served as a pastor for a while and then um, following my wife's career, moved back to Indiana, which is something I never expected to do. I thought when I got out of Indiana the first time I wasn't going to come back, but I came back to Indiana in 2012. And a few years later, um, there was a call for applications for uh, to be a member of the hymnal committee for the Mennonite Church. And this was a joint effort of Mennonite Church USA and Mennonite Church Canada. Um, so I applied and was selected as the text editor for the new hymnal. And that became Voices Together, which came out in 2020, which as it turns out, was possibly the worst time to release a hymnal. Uh, we <laughs> released into a world where most congregations were not singing together. Um, uh, but the experience of producing the hymnal was uh, just incredible. I got to work with an amazing team led by my friend Bradley Kaufman, who's the general editor and project director, and served alongside two other area editors. So there was a tune editor, Benjamin Berge, and a worship resources editor, Sarah Johnson, um, and then uh, I think 12 other committee members. And we gathered in person three times a year during the process uh, for a total of 50 days worth of in-person meetings, usually 12-hour days and often 14-hour days um, working on what would become the hymnal, um, released in the middle of the pandemic, which was strangely, you know, there were certainly huge disadvantages to not being able to sing together from it. But it meant that people who were getting their hands on the hymnal tracked down recordings and listened to songs and researched songs ahead of time before they had the chance to try to sing them in person. And I think that that was counterintuitively a great way to introduce new material because you could hear something without the pressure of having to sight read it and you could gain insights into it before. Uh, being asked to introduce it into worship. And uh, so I think a lot of people really engaged with the hymnal in a different way than if they were encountering things for the first time in the midst of worship and having to learn on the fly and having to encounter changes to their favorite hymns without the opportunity to reflect on why those changes might have happened. Well, I will admit my own personal ignorance my own tunnel vision as a Baptist uh, of not knowing uh, a lot about Mennonite worship style. And I know there are different, different Mennonites, just like there are different Baptists. Uh, to what degree uh, does your kind of Mennonite um, have any sense of like the classic liturgical uh, lectionary kind of experience, or is it more akin to the, uh, you know, historic Protestant kind of worship. Yeah, we're part of the free church tradition, um, akin to Baptists in many ways. Um, but I think there has been a, uh, a growth in interest in the lectionary over the last couple of decades, especially, uh, largely introduced um, by our 1992 hymnal, hymnal worship book, where the there was some intentional engagement in the church calendar in a way that hadn't been present before. Um, and uh, so it's pretty common among Mennonites to 
encounter practices of following the lectionary for Advent and Lent, and then perhaps going off book. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say off book. We're still on the book, but not on the lectionary uh, right. for the rest right. of the seasons. Well, in, in what way then does a, a hymnal committee begin thinking uh, about the process of shaping uh, a Mennonite hymnal? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. It's, a, of course, an immense task. And uh, we like to say that we stood upon the shoulders of giants because we had very good hymnals um, to build upon. So we had our 1992 book. There was a 1969 hymnal as well and generations of hymnals before those that were very well done, very well received and loved within our denominations. And so our, our first stage was... Uh, receiving feedback on what material made up the heart songs of our denominations. What were the pieces that were perceived as essential for Mennonite worship across a wide range of Mennonites, um, uh, looking at the diversity of the church and what voices we wanted to make sure were represented. And so we had a, a very strong body of material to draw upon. And that makes up, uh, I think around 50% of what's in Voices Together is material drawn from those earlier streams. Uh, we were very intentional about adding to that material that was already well-loved, but not within those canons. Um, because prior to now, um, especially praise and worship music, wasn't regarded as necessarily something you would write down and put in a book. Um, and so there were many Mennonite churches that were not singing primarily from hymnals anymore, but they had their own beloved repertoire. And we knew we needed to pay attention to that and look at how we would integrate that into, into a hardbound book as well. How much borrowing uh, occurs uh, from other traditions within Mennonite tradition? Almost all of it. <laughs> so. Oh, okay. <laughs> Our, we have not had strong traditions of producing our own hymns. And in fact, that's part of what inspired me to become a text writer was recognizing that we were, we were constructing our own theology on borrowed foundations, that we, we had a canon of material in a hymnal that really reflected Mennonite identity, but using words from elsewhere, using theologies from elsewhere. And of course, there's enough overlap that if you pull that together from all different sources, you can construct something that reflects our own theology. But we weren't writing it ourselves yet, by and large. There were a few people, but not very many. And so that's part of why I started writing hymns, was I saw this gap. The, there were not Mennonite voices writing Mennonite theology to be sung by Mennonites. Um, and, and so I set out to do that, um, with, I think the, the kind of hubris that's not typical of a Mennonite. Um, <laughs> and I guess I can attribute that to the Presbyterian side of my family that I, I thought that was something I could do. Um, so yeah, most of our theology has, has been, most of our sung theology has been borrowed. Um, but it's fair to say now that you know, beyond my own work, there are many more people, um, especially on the composition side, I would say, who are uh, are representing Mennonites and are giving Mennonites ways of singing Mennonite theology. 
And that's being picked up outside of the Mennonite church too. You know, one of my most popular hymns is one called The Church of Christ Cannot Be Bound, which was inspired by words of Menno Simons, who wrote that true evangelical faith cannot lie dormant. Um, it clothes the naked, it feeds the hungry, and on and on. Um, so I wrote a, a hymn as a, a very loose paraphrase of that and with some other inspirations. And long before Mennonites were singing that, it was picked up by Baptists in Celebrating Grace um, and Catholics and Presbyterians and Reformed churches, um, all of whom saw something of themselves in this text that happens to come from a Mennonite source. What has led you then um, from uh, being a Mennonite pastor uh, composing within the Mennonite tradition uh, to working for GIA. Mm -hmm. So when I was a beginning writer and uh, just starting to get my work out into the world, I um, contracted with GIA as my own publisher. And uh, they published over the years five collections of my hymns. And I worked with a wonderful editor named Randy Sensmeyer, who's also a composer. Um, worked with him on all of my texts and pulling these things together and just gained immense respect for him. Um, and started to wonder as Randy was getting older, what would happen when Randy retires? Um, and as it turns out, he had his his eye on that too. And he figured out, I think before I did, that I should be the one to follow him. And so I started to notice at some point that he was, you know, coming to me for advice on, you know, what do you think I ought to do with this particular hymn? Or what do you think of this writer? And I would send him su suggestions. Oh, I just encountered this great writer. You should consider their work, that kind of thing. Um, so I started to notice that he was uh, training me already. And so um, one year at Hymn Society Conference, he and I would usually get together for a meal or a drink or something like that. And we had scheduled breakfast for the last morning of the conference. And I sort of steeled myself to, to ask him outright, okay, Randy, what happens when you retire? And maybe suggest to him that uh, we should think about uh, how I might fit into that equation. Well, I sat down for breakfast and he asked me first. Uh, so oh. it turns out <laughs> that he had the same thing in mind. Um, and he took that plan and that idea back to his bosses at GIA. And uh, I went out to Chicago and we got it all set up. Um, you know, I, I live about two and a half hours from the offices in Chicago, and I, I went out for this interview or arrangement for this job in, uh, I think, January of 2020 with the idea that I would, you know, come in and visit the office office about once a month. And <laughs> so I, I, I took this position and then the pandemic hit. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, from the outset, the intent was to work remotely from my home in Goshen. And um, I've been back to the office now a couple times since the pandemic. Um, but yeah, I started working with GIA just as our Mennonite Hymnal project was winding down. So I was able to wind up my involvement at GIA. And now I work uh, 
you know, close to half time. Um, uh, work on cultivating the work of writers and composers like myself, uh, pulling together new collections. Um, but the biggest part of my work has been developing what we call Unbound. And if your listeners would like to visit giamusic.com slash unbound, this is an online resource where if you need one hymn, this is where you go for it. You can search by author, you can search by scripture, you can search by lectionary and find hymns that fit exactly what you need. Um, and you don't have to buy a whole collection of them. You can just buy one at a time. Yeah, that sounds like a great source. Hmm. So now tell, tell us, go in a little more detail uh, about, sure. about that. Um, well, the tradition has been that a writer would uh, sign a contract with GIA, and then once they have 50 or 75 hymns ready, those would get put into a spiral-bound book, and those would sit in a warehouse, and a few people would buy them, and uh, GIA would send them out to hymnal committees, things like that. Um, but a lot of times, hymns sort of end up hidden away in these collections and may not get discovered very well. So that's part of where the idea for Unbound came, that we have collections dating back 30 years, and this is a way to help people find them, help people discover them. Um, I think one of the most exciting aspects of this job for me is getting to be the first person to read a new hymn or to hum through a new tune and encountering some really exciting new voices. People saying things or composing things that we haven't had a way to experience before. And so I'm, I'm working with brand new writers that I, I hope your, your listeners will check out. There's a, a woman who's just getting started named Hannah Brown. We only have a couple of things on Unbound so far, but many, many more coming. Um, a writer named Angela Reniker is worth checking out. Um, Composer Mark Miller uh, is working with us now. We just published a collection of his work this past summer. Um, and I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with uh, Let's Walk Together or Draw the Circle Wide um, that are some of his biggest hits prior to coming to GAA. He's doing all kinds of wonderful new stuff. Uh, Carlos Colon is a composer originally from El Salvador who works at Baylor University doing amazing stuff, and we're putting many of his bilingual pieces up on Unbound, too. But yeah, plenty of wonderful things in addition to our back catalog, including Mary Louise Bringle, Sally Morris, Ruth Duck, um, just amazing, amazing well of material. I think we have something like 3,000 pieces available already. Well, now, so does, do, do you go hunting the people, or do they come to you? I keep my eyes open. Usually it's they come to us, um, but uh, there have been a few where uh, I'll hear about a writer or I'll come across something and I'll send them an email saying, hey, I'd like to see a little bit more if you could send me some samples. Um, I mean, so, uh, it, you know, these are just people that are saying, uh, I've, I've gotten into him writing. Uh, mm-hmm music writing and i'm looking to find a publisher yeah uh, yeah we have a there's an email address submissions at giamusic.com if any of your listeners are writers or composers feel free to send in some samples 
I, you know, I prefer if they only send two or three things, um, it, that's a lot easier to process than if they send me all 200 things they've written. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Um, what do you see kind of being the trend, uh, in sacred music writing? I mean, cause I know that, um, uh, you know, there was that strong period, uh, during the eighties and the nineties and the early, uh, two thousands of, of chorus based songs. Mm-hmm. Um, but there seems to be a, a renewal in some ways of, of the interest in writing hymns. And, uh, so what are you seeing or, or trends that are going on? I think the most exciting thing to me is the way that those streams that you mentioned are kind of merging, that they're learning from one another. So among some contemporary worship music writers, you'll find strophic things that look exactly like a traditional hymn on the page when it's written as a text. And among people rooted in traditional hymnody, there's much more interest now, I think, in refrains and in working in musical, musical styles that really can't be pegged one way or another. I would say that the two pieces of mine that we played earlier, um, those aren't organ-based or traditional SATB settings. Um, they're musically more rooted in contemporary idioms, but with texts that are uh, follow traditional forms, traditional strophic forms, just with the addition of a refrain. Um, So I think it would be difficult to categorize them if we really stick to strict binaries of of the forms of these pieces. And that that gets exciting to me. I like seeing those barriers falling down and people working together across those traditional lines. What about when it comes to international music? Because I know that there's a you know, I did an interview uh, relating to decolonizing worship uh, and and the uh, the efforts on the part of uh, different uh, ethnicities, uh, different international communities uh, developing their own music and their own music styles. Uh, yeah, that's especially exciting um, because every time we are invited to sing with one another, from around the world and from within our own communities across those uh, lines of diversity, I think we have the opportunity to learn and grow in our own faith and to learn to see God in new ways and from different perspectives and to see different sides of God that maybe we it hadn't occurred to us to sing about before. Um, and so I think um, Receiving those songs with the utmost respect and gratitude when we're invited into those spaces of singing uh, is a great gift to the church. Well, talk to us a little bit more uh, about those uh, text writers and composers uh, that you think um, you mentioned several. Uh, yeah. Quickly, kind of talk with us a little more about those uh, that that you think we need to be aware of. Yeah, and I'll I'll add a couple more names to that list as we go here, too. Um, I think, you know, we might refer to these as the second or third generation of the hymn explosion. Um, Some of you may be familiar with the idea that there was this spark in the 1960s in England that launched a new generation of writers after a, 
after a pretty quiet period, you know, there were, um, you know, 50 or so years that not very many people were writing hymns, or at least there weren't people writing hymns that were being widely received. But starting with people like uh, Eric Routley and Brian Wren and Fred Kahn and Timothy Dudley Smith in England, and then spreading over to the United States with Thomas Troger, and Carl Daw, and Ruth Duck, and then Dolores Duffner, um, there was this explosion of hymn writing. Um, and that's grown to include more and more people with people like uh, Mary Louise Bringle and Jackie Jones beginning to write in the early 2000s. And, you know, I came along in the you know sort of second half of the early 2000s. And now we've got another generation emerging with people like Hannah Brown that I mentioned, Chris Shelton, David Bjorlin, a composer named Ben Brody. Um, who are, are carrying on this tradition, you know, we're rooted in the traditional traditions of the Western church and strophic hymns and uh, the, the styles that we've grown up with. But people of my generation have grown up with praise and worship music as well. That was a big part of my own uh, church experience. And I find that to be true of several of these other writers, too. And so that merging that I mentioned, that crossing of lines happens with all of these folks. Um, it, it's exciting. I mean, it, every time there's a new voice, uh, we have the opportunity to learn different things and see different perspectives to give voice to something that have, hasn't been sounded before. I realized with this writer, Hannah Brown, who's uh, just getting started, um, the other the other younger writers that I've been working with were all young men, uh, you know, myself, David Bjorlin, Chris Shelton. And we actually had a conversation among the three of us saying, okay, who's the next younger woman who's going to be writing? And it, it might be a stretch to say younger because uh, all of us are or most of us are in our forties now, um, but it is it is the next generation. It is a, a new sound coming out, and with Hannah, she brings the perspective of a woman who's a pastor, who's a mother, um, that we haven't had very many opportunities to sing from those perspectives or to sing theology that has those perspectives as part of her life experience. Um, so what a gift to the church to be able to give voice uh, to some of these perspectives. Well, as a theologian, I have to ask theological questions because I'm interested then in how does the theological spectrum uh, shape what you decide to publish and shape how a hymnal uh, is thought about? Sure. Well, I'll start with my work on Voices Together, um, because we were, for the for the Mennonite churches, we were working on resourcing and representing two denominations, Mennonite Church USA, Mennonite Church Canada, who are part of a worldwide body of Mennonites who are incredibly diverse. Um, and so how would we both represent that breadth and then also serve those people who would choose to use a hymnal, which is 
you know, one particular portion of that breadth of diversity. And what I like to say is that I hope everybody who uses the hymnal can find something in it to get angry about. <laughs> that uh, ideally, everybody would recognize in this hymnal something that they might disagree with, but also understand that it's there because somebody needs it. It's there because it represents somebody. It's there because it serves somebody who may be different than me. Um, and so finding ways to hold those intentions, to recognize that uh, there's no single church who will be perfectly represented by every single item within this book, but the book is too big for any single church anyway. No congregation should be singing 760 hymns over the course of a year or however many years. Congregation usually has a repertoire of around 200 or 300 hymns that they go to, and things move in and out of that. So the hymnal should be big enough that most congregations can find themselves in it, but there should be lots of material that's not going to work for them or that they don't necessarily uh, turn to, but it's there because it serves somebody. And that, so that's one way of representing a breadth of diversity, um, theological, musical, cultural, and we can put it all into one book. Um, in terms of GIA work and our, you know, I, I don't necessarily like to go to the word market, but the, the people who might be served by what we offer, um, that's even more diverse, of course, than uh, just one denomination. Uh, we're a company that has roots in the Catholic Church, but is uh, quite ecumenical, especially in the area of hymnody. Um, starting in the, the late 80s already, uh, they were publishing works by people like Sylvia Dunstan, who is rooted in the United Church of Canada, and Herman Stemfley, who's who was Lutheran, um, moving into uh, Ruth Duck, who's United Church of Christ, um, Mary Louise Bringle, who's Presbyterian. So the hymnody part of our company has always been very intentionally ecumenical, and you know they went so far as to even sign a Mennonite when I came on board. Um, and so I, I I enjoy working with that denominational breadth. There is a um, sort of progressive uh, Protestant tint to that. Um, and in my observation, the style of work that we're publishing, especially this idea of new words, often that can be sung tradi to traditional tunes, um, has most readily found a home in progressive Protestant circles. And so I think theologically, uh, the the accent of our material leans that direction, um, but not exclusively. And you know, one of our major writers is Sister Dolores Duffner, who's uh, a member of the uh, Benedictines in Minnesota, and we have a new collection of her work coming out this summer. Um, and so there, there is still material that's deeply rooted in Catholic faith and practice just as mine is deeply rooted in Mennonite faith and practice. But in both cases, they cross lines. Mennonites sing Dolores Duffner's work and Catholics sing Adam Tice's work. So there's all kinds of sharing that goes on. 
Well, Adam, you have given us some great insight. You've also shared with us some wonderful music. Uh, and so I'm grateful uh, for the conversation that we've had today. I, I appreciate your willingness to do that. So thank you for being with me. Absolutely. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak